0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're talking about F for Fake, the early 70s documentary by Orson Welles, and the theme is fakes or fakery. Helen, kick us off.
1: Okay. Todd McGowan defines the left as a political phenomenon where contradiction is not transformed into opposition. The left is precisely political, the right is not. The right, since it buys into the fantasy of either returning to a utopian past, fascism, or entering into a utopian future, neoliberalism, relies on the logic of the enemy, the logic of the particular for sustenance. In right-wing thinking, utopias exist just over the horizon, either before us or behind. An enemy must blot out this horizon because it is only in the blotting out that the fantasy actually exists. If we ever did away with our enemy, our obstacle, or our scapegoat, we would discover that wholeness isn't there reality is always necessarily lacking. The unconscious knowledge of this traumatic insight sustains this divisional thinking. Divisional thinking generates suffering that needn't be so bad. It creates, for example, oppression and alienation. Utopian visions are always dystopian in practice. They shield our eyes from the emancipatory potential of the lacking present, where we can discover joy, ordinary unhappiness, ordinary transcendence, a Hegelian vision of heaven, all of which might just actually be quite a bit more than okay. Utopian visions can never be universalists and can therefore never be political. Universalism is not to be found in dumb, happy-clappy UNESCO handholding, nor in worthy Benetton displays of moral difference, but rather in movements that contain everything, including lack and contradiction. It is therefore ironic that we call totalitarianism totalitarianism because totalitarianism is never total enough. It always relies on an excluded other. Totalitarian politics are both fake Totalitarianism and fake politics, just as right wing politics are not politics at all. The political, rather, is the tarrying with contradiction at the level of the social. It is, again, as Todd McGowan states, the reverse transformation of opposition back into contradiction. Democracy, when not tied to capital, can be a good example of this. Capitalism, in contrast to democracy, seeks to repress contradiction in favor of utopian visions of wholeness. It is therefore right wing. Capitalism, in the mode of the right, tells us that our necessary experience of lack is rather contingent. It places the utopian experience at a point future to us and it takes that a gap between us and it can only be closed by the completion of a task or the purchasing of a product. capitalism is therefore a means of ordering society around the ideology of promise. The ideology of promise has existed as long as human subjectivity our subjectivity knitted together by language emerges from the from the essential lack as does actually everything in the universe as we know this truth is uncomfortable fantasy tells us that we can get close we can close the gap of lack through the achievement of some goal or the praying to some god capitalism has merely commodified this tendency it has now settled into every crevice of our social order it is how we experience the modern world Ideology is that which papers over the contradictions of capitalism. Ideology hides the fallacy of fantasy. Left-wing politics are those which point to this fallacy. They dwell within rather than repress the intractable contradiction of our universe. Left-wing politics are therefore anti-ideological. Right-wing quote-unquote politics are, on the other hand, precisely just the same as the ideology of capital. Many left-wing or post-left commentators have been swept up in the capitalist illusion that the left wing of capital is the left wing at all. If we adhere to McGowan's definition again, there can be no left wing of capital. The phrase is oxymoronic. The contemporary quote unquote left therefore, the left wing of capital is again a fake, an invisible sleight of hand of the market. As I've said many times before, we believe in the commodity form like we used to believe in gods. Capitalism is a secular religion and the aesthetics of leftism are one of the most brilliant illusions that disguise this disquieting fact. To read the market system through a Zizekian, a-religious, quote-unquote, Christian lens, is to see dialectically that God is contradiction. The ideological lie of capital is the devil. And as Kaiser Soze reminds us, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to tell us that he doesn't exist. But in our modern world, driven as we all are by the super-egoic call of the market, the devil is everywhere and the devil is everywhere invisible a spell has indeed been cast by the terrible magical logic of capital upon many who had once hoped that there existed a left they take capital at its word and see the left in its left wing deciding that everything that is left is worse than possibly anything else that has existed on the planet to make this mistake is to be caught up in the hall of mirrors of our fraught ideological age to lose the right philosophical thread and to fall into the fakery of aesthetic definitions It has led to a politics of nihilism, a politics of enemy making and finger pointing, which, as we have seen, isn't political at all. Of course, a quote unquote left that papers over the contradiction of surplus value with a feel good, quote unquote, political aesthetics that uses the word comrade to speak to its exploited and its exploiters, that colours particularist institutions and even bombs and bullets with every saccharine shade of the rainbow, is not, not the left at all. It is a fake, possibly more right than the traditional right repressing the emancipatory contradiction even further than any conservative institution ever did. But be under no illusion, the left still does exist. Its appearance has changed. Its shape has shifted. It exists at the margins, in between, in thought and in reason and in art and in creation and in connection with other people. It might involve groups and individuals we don't like or used not to. It might involve those who look like conservatives or those who we thought once were. The left is to do with an understanding that goes beyond the logic of capital, and many, many, many people understand. We need a political movement, political institutions, born out of this understanding. Only they can perhaps save us from the dystopian tyranny that faces us, a devil's voice calling us to self-sabotage our way to sustaining fake fantasies of wholeness, completeness, and transcendence, which are in reality death cult fantasies of an undifferentiated hell on earth.
0: Lots to think about there. That's very fun. All right, Nina, you're up.
2: Okay, um, my, my my rather more impressionistic and perhaps prosaic uh, initial impressions of the film um, "F for Fake" from 1973. Um, first of all, simply it was it was actually very nice to watch something so minor in a way that was, of course, it's about a whole you know, real series of events, but also about the fakery involved in the, the real series of events. Um, but actually how sort of t- delightful and playful it was in a way that I think a lot of cinema can't be somehow today, that there was this, um, I mean, clearly the question of what it means to be an actor for Wells, you know, and the kind of, let's say... Um, imposter syndrome, uh, which is a very interesting phrase that is often brought up by people today. And many people in contemporary workplaces often describe themselves as, as feeling like imposters, like they, they don't feel, particularly women perhaps, but this is a kind of common refrain of contempt, the contemporary workplace, that they don't feel like they belong there, that they've, they they must have gotten the job through some kind of trickery or you know that someone has been mistaken. But to see Wells and others um, play with um, this syndrome and indeed embrace it as a central feature of filmmaking, of acting, um, it's interesting to think about those people, if you like, who are paid to lie, um, actors and lawyers, (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, at at least. Um, But to, I suppose, to have that sort of um, lassitude. Um, and a lot of the, the the documentary, if we can describe it in that way, is a, a rather delightful image of the world in which people sit around sort of having conversations and drinking and eating and being uh, having parties. And it's a very sort of human world in a way, even though we're also talking about large scale Um, crimes in a certain sense although the question of what counts as criminality is central to the documentary because the the question is not between the the real and the fake but between the good fake and the bad fake and this would also go for the human beings involved themselves and it's clear that um there's a certain charm in the forgers they're very very charismatic people and and wells is charismatic and uh um oh yeah kodar is very charismatic too, and they're all playing different kind of uh, roles. And I, But I think one of the things that kind of, um, let's say the fulcrum of the documentary in a certain way for me was the fact that there is a reality at play here, and it's a kind of um, image of desire, which is the real, um, if you like, expressions of the men who are watching Oya Kodar as she walks uh, very provocatively in this very short dress, down the street in the middle of the road. Of course, this is like distracting. And of course, she, her sort of beauty and her stature are distracting. But there's something in the way that they capture surreptitiously. I mean, if we are to believe the setup of this scene anyway, um, of the surprise of the desire of the men seeing this beautiful woman walking down the street. And in a way, there's something about that, um, that image of the, the, of reality, which is tied to a desire which is kind of lies underneath the whole discussion of forgery and fakes and art and truth and beauty, which I thought was very interesting. So the world, for Wells, at least as he perceives it, is um, based on these—I uh, don't know—non-fungible things like a man's desire for a woman, let's say, whether it's a, a woman you don't know or a woman you you do, and yeah, I think the. Um, the kind of real uh, horror and critique is reserved not for the forgers, and which actually is an incredibly hard amount of work, actually. And that there is a brilliance in what what is you know being shown uh, in writing the forging of the Howard Hughes memoir, but also the forging of the Modiglianis and the Picassos and all of these things, you know, by a man who has at least forty different names. Um, but also the uh, you know, the, the real opprobrium is for the art world, for the kind of the mercenary horror of the the people who want to get rich from selling and dealing art. And in a way that the forgers are the good guys. They're like the Robin Hoods in a certain way who are also themselves apparently getting screwed and never making enough money. And it's the dealers and the greed of the art market. And we, we have to say that since 1973, this is only... Uh, you know, increased to an insane degree. And the level of um, fakery, phoniness in the art world is obviously off the charts. The amount of money washing, money laundering that passes through galleries. It's very amusing today to see speculation around NFTs and a kind of disapproval of this new model of uh, exchanging uh, money when we're looking at galleries that are sponsored by Sackler and by, you know, the most appalling corporations where art galleries are used to, to art wash uh money from the arms trade, from drugs from you know and so on. So um, you know this the, often I think the kind of moral posturing that you get in the art world and the kind of um, cynical uh, lag that you often see. So so a year later after the death of George Floyd, you now have lots of art galleries putting on BLM inspired shows. Right, and you you just know that they the trustees sat around and said we've got to do something that relates to this. But because of the speed of these things, it, you know, they turn up a bit later, and you can see that the art world is permanently reacting not only to the faddishness of uh, art culture itself, but also to politics. And and often then it becomes like a wing of politics. You know, it's just a kind of uh, propaganda under another name. It doesn't have necessarily any values or um, defence of Um, art itself so that the question of art becomes like everything else a question of the right position and the wrong position as opposed to let's say the question uh, about good or bad whether an artwork is good or bad and so everything devolves back onto the moral or the political um, and not to the aesthetic um, at the same time as politics is constantly smearing itself in aesthetics usually quite bad aesthetics Um, so I thought there was something that very worth revisiting in this otherwise quite minor piece. And, we, you know, it's a very unusual little, uh, you know, kind of side project of Wells. It's like a kind of little folly uh, in a way, um, but very delightful um, for that. And it reminded me a lot, just to finish, of um, the work of Patricia Highsmith, who I'm very obsessed with. And, of course, Ripley as her major existential figure is an art forger. And he's also someone who forges and fakes his way through this elite culture. He becomes more cultured than Dickie Greenleaf and these beautiful people that he wants to spend time with. He obsessively listens to every jazz record. He uh, dresses the right way. He, you know, he he becomes a performer and a character. And later on he's an art forger. And it's, it's in, in the way Highsmith tells it, it, it's an existential question about because it, it raises the possibility of choosing to live one's life in a certain way, of, of in a way, making yourself a work of art to sort of slightly misquote Foucault. But to in a, in a way, the entire act of deciding who you are as a subject is a bit like being an artistic Project and, and setting yourself up. And you can be more or less a, a good fake or a bad fake, but you're always a fake, I think, one way or another. And that, that everybody at a certain moment has to uh, try to, to deal with this possibility that, that one is not authentic, whatever that would mean. And, and has there ever been a, a truly authentic uh, human being? Um, so I'll leave it there.
0: Great fun. Great fun. All right. It's my turn. In F for Fake, Orson Welles tells the story of Elmire de a notorious art forger. Welles points out that the art experts who distinguish real paintings from fake ones often have an interest in verifying paintings. If they say the paintings are real, they can put them in their museums and sell them for enormous amounts of money. If they denounce them as fakes, they have to make do with a much smaller number of genuine works, far too few to spread out among the many galleries and museums. Everyone in the art world wants the paintings to be real. If everyone just plays along, everybody wins. And who is to spot the fakes? If even the experts can't tell or prefer not to see, no one is left to make the distinction. The fakes might as well be real for all we know. What's more, if someone like Elmir can succeed in persuading art experts that his forgeries are real works by famous masters, it's possible that this happens all the time. The famous masters could just be lucrative brands under which the works of a host of forgers are sold. Entire Picasso periods could be fabricated. Would it matter if they were? A beautiful painting is still beautiful no matter who painted it, no matter why it was painted. At one point, Wells gives us one of those big speeches about how we're all going to be dead and everything we've ever done is going to be forgotten anyway. We don't know who sculpted most ancient statues or who designed and built most ancient temples. We don't particularly care either. They are treated not as the masterpieces of individuals, but as the artifacts of civilizations. Ultimately, the trouble is that Wells is looking for truth in physical objects. Art is a medium. We use it to raise questions about what's good, about what's true. Art is an invitation to think or feel about something. When it's done well, those invitations lead us into conversations that help us become wise. The art itself never contains truth in some kind of fixed or immutable way. All it can do is prompt us to think, to talk, to discover things for ourselves. When art tries to tell us what's right and wrong, it stops being an invitation to wisdom and instead becomes an instrument of propaganda. Remember after Donald Trump was elected president, so many artists thought they needed to respond. For the next half a decade, they made anti-Trump propaganda. There was nothing to think about, nothing to argue over, nothing to interpret. The bad guy in every movie was a version of Trump. And the point of this was to remind you that orange man bad. This art didn't make us better people, but it did make the artists feel better about themselves. They were being political. They were taking a principled stand. But the art itself was rubbish. It virtue signaled and did little else. If the movie theaters failed to recover from coronavirus, the Hollywood response to Trump will be a big part of the reason why. Sometimes the same work of art succeeds in inviting us to wisdom in some situations, but not others. Some works of art resonate with us in the right kind of way because we run across them at the right point in our lives or because the social context invites us to think about them in an especially generative way. Those same works might not do anything for us if we see them when we're too young or too old. They might not work for us if our context leads us to judge the work harshly before we've really thought about it. The Trump era doesn't just produce terrible new art. It also ruins our ability to receive older art. Instead of accepting the invitation to wisdom, we get stuck on whether the art from the past aligns with present norms. When it comes to art, these are the questions I think matter most. Does the art invite us to think or talk about a subject in a way that encourages wisdom? Is it the right moment for us to receive that invitation? Some art offers an invitation we cannot refuse. Some art offers an invitation that only certain kinds of people in certain kinds of situations can accept. If there's something blocking us from accepting the invitation, What's in the way? If I can't get anything from a piece of art, is it because of where I'm at in my life? Is it because of the kind of society I'm living in? Or is the art straightforwardly propaganda? These questions about authorship don't really matter. Great art isn't great because of its author or its author's intentions. It's great because we got the invitation, we accepted it, and we're better for having done so. Even work that is nihilistic or propagandistic can, in the right hands lead to a good conversation. When that happens, for a brief moment, it becomes a Picasso. And even a Picasso can sit in some person's house, generating nothing, its invitations piling up in the proverbial mailbox. Whether it's by Picasso or it's not, its value depends entirely on our engagement with it and whether that engagement leads to wisdom. Sure, if people think it was actually by Pablo, you can sell it for a ton of money. You can make people think you're cool by hanging it in your house. But if you think that's what matters, you're not interested in the truth.
2: Very good.
1: You know, there's something that you were saying, you know, about the, the, the thing that's, that sort of permeates the film that's the only real thing is desire, right? The men who are filmed by a hidden camera looking at the the, the actress. Um, and then also you're talking about imposter syndrome, and it's interesting because there's something really true about this that I think is sort of kind of a Lacanian insight that the only really true things are a desire. I mean, our subjectivity is born mm. out of desire. It, you know, without desire, there's no subjectivity. Um, but also that the only true emotion is anxiety and the reason why it's true is it's like well yeah the imposter syndrome you're talking about yeah like well it's true yeah you, you you don't deserve to be there no one deserves to be there <laughs> but you know the fact is you know as when one becomes a neurotic subject you know Lacan says the the non-duped uh um like uh, a play on words with the the name of the father le non-duper le non-duper you know um in that you know the the lie is all there is so like when we're when we're anxious you know absolutely we've touched on reality absolutely you know anxiety is completely correct but also it's incorrect in the fact that that we engage in life through the sort of like neurotic lie um but yeah sadly anxiety is is sort of (laughs) is true you know um but yeah we have to sort of work a way of sort of like you know that it, Zizek talks i think in one of the um, pervert Skies films about how um in three colors blue the uh juliet benoche character becomes too close to the real when her she discovers that her child is dead and her husband's dead and that her husband was having an affair you know and that in um, there's like a, a, a gap in the chain of signifiers is generated when somebody who's really, you know, has symbolic meaning for you passes away. And therefore you're like too close to the real. And in the journey of the film, she sort of knits together that chain of signifiers again. And the film ends, I believe, with a shot through a pane of glass of her. And it's sort of that distance that is um, a lie. You know, the, the fact is, of course, that her children are dead and she's gone through this terrible trauma. But in order to sort of like engage with the world, she has that sort of distance she's been she's been distanced from the real with this sort of symbolic so anxiety unfortunately is true but the lie is the thing that protects us from that truth and that anxiety isn't that generative or anything
2: anxiety is never generative do you say
1: well it's not really that generative no it's true but it's not useful
2: yeah i mean it's it's interesting to to pitch this in a sort of heideggerian way in terms of actually authenticity as well because. I mean, in Heidegger, you have a slightly different, you know, way of understanding anxiety, that anxiety is always in relation to the future, that anxiety has this temporal dimension, it's um, a certain, it's a Grundstimmung. Um, because it presents to you the fact of possibilization, right? So the, the, the reason why the future is anxiety-inducing is in a way is because it's open. And, mm-hmm. you know, every time we have this access to openness, we're reminded of the fact that we have um, this uh, freedom, if you like, or, you know, in a Sartrean sense, right, that we are... Like the, the anxiety of freedom um, it, because it's painful and we, then we seek to disavow it and we live inauthentically, we go along with the they, we go along with the crowd, we drown ourselves in the world um, instead of sort of uh, authentically taking charge of our own capacity to possibilize and saying, well, I'm going to decide to do this in the face of the knowledge of my own finitude. Right. And that's what being authentic is in a certain way. It's like saying, I know that I'm making this decision in the light of my own death. And it's uh, the only meaning it has for me is because I know I'm going to die. Right. And I've decided to do this thing and not all these other things. Right. So there is a kind of possibility of a certain relation to authenticity in Heidegger, which which also you can criticize and have, you know, has been criticized for being heroic. You know, that, that this is kind of uh, in alignment with his sort of right wing politics, his membership of the Nazi party, that there's something kind of, you know, uh, you know. And I, I I think this is true, that there is something um, to try to make death the foundation of your politics, if you like, is um, what happens in the 20th century. <laughs> right. To to kind of dignify death and to make it a kind of um, central uh yeah, the central bearer of meaning, right? You have, you know, this is how you send millions of young men to their death in wars, basically. You poeticise death. Um, and I think this isn't the, you know, what's going on in the awesome Wells films at all, because here you have playfulness um in a mm-hmm. certain way, even though e- even in the speech where Benjamin mentioned that he's um talking about death and being forgotten, and yeah, we don't remember the names of the architects of the cathedral at Chart, and we, you know, we don't we wouldn't even care, you know. And and but I think this you know, where Orson Well starts talking about how art used to be made for the greater glory of God, And that's obviously the case, whether we're talking about cathedrals or masses or requiems or, you know, most music or a lot of music. Um, I'm, I'm very obsessed with polyphony and the danger presented by polyphony at a certain point, And you had to have a license and There are only two people who had a license, Talis and Bird, um, because they were so frightened that the music, because it's so powerful, like polyphony is like mind-blowing, right? And they were worried that people would get obsessed with the music rather than realising it was a passage to a higher reflection of of God's glory, right? So, But Orson Welles makes the point that art has become about man, or we could say also about woman (laughs) and the form of woman. I mean, a lot of the the artists that are being discussed and being copied are, Modigliani and Picasso and Matisse and many of these artists of course may make their um, mark during female nudes uh, you know however cubist or however um attenuated the the nudes are um and then so so that kind of um reduction of art or this shift between a kind of uh, vertical a verticality of art where art is you know made for a higher purpose and art that's made by man about men (laughs) um of course it's going to kind of like uh spiral in on itself right and and start to reflect all of the the negative things about man too um the inverse of inversion of beauty somehow and Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot about Paul McCarthy lately, not Paul McCartney. Paul McCarthy, you know, who makes these kind of grotesque, obscene, excessive works. And a lot, I've having terrible dreams and migraines lately, and they're 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 like Paul McCarthy works, like just disgusting stuff everywhere, like food and like vast quantities of stuff and things, and you know, and and what about work that, in a way, reflects back to us the horror of the age we live in, if if you see what I mean, like work that kind of goes there and like Mm -hmm. Salo Pasolini Salo or something revisiting Mm -hmm. the kind of grotesque really the anarchism of fascism and you know what power actually does libidinally um so I don't know I mean it's just maybe this is more relating to what Benjamin was saying about art and wisdom and and you know what can be learned or what can be understood by art that perhaps pushes back at those concepts of of truth, beauty, and wisdom, and insight, but does so in a different way by representing the horror of, you know, capitalist excrescence.
0: I I don't think that 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 art necessarily pushes back against those categories. I think what it reveals is that we live in a society which is in many ways indifferent to them and uh, and doesn't get at them. Part of what what bugs me about a lot of that mid-century existentialism is that it kind of alights on the individual as as the source of meaning and goes well. There's meaning in you, the individual making a choice. But if that's all you've got, well then, w- well, what difference does it make which choice you make? As long as the choice is made authentically, then the freedom is is be can be celebrated. And and Heidegger's fixation on finding other ways of being in the world, different ways of being in the world, just because they're different, just because they're distinctive. You know, that that emphasis on the individual. Uh, it it can't be sustained. It can't be sustained because necessarily all the individual is attaching the meaning to is the fact of decision-making in and of itself. The individual isn't embedded in anything, isn't embedded in anything that matters. Uh, All that matters is that the individual choose whatever they do in in this. And, And that, of course, eats its own tail. And so, you get this kind of pendulum swinging between this hyper, hyper seriousness about the individual and the seriousness about individual choices and the individual's life and individual death and then this uh parodying nihilism which says fuck all of that what the fuck does any of that actually matter Uh, because because the first can't sustain itself it gives rise to the second and invites the nihilistic response
2: but this is why sartre loses his mind at the end of the 50s early 60s where he tries his tries really hard to fuse the um his you know existentialism with his Marxism, in the critique of dialectical reason, which is a deranged, amphetamine-fueled, eight hundred page, two volume, unfinished thing, which I read and studied and wrote about for my PhD at great length. So I'm very familiar with this text. But he, you know, this is like where he realizes exactly this problem. He's <laughs> yeah. Like oh no. It is.
1: You This it's generative of so much comedy, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> that Because um, obviously there is this tendency young for people to really, you know, buy into the, star, you know, the Sartrean mm. thing whatever. Um, and obviously because of the nature of reality, you're confronted with the contradictions and limitations quite shockingly in quite a funny way, which is quite brilliant. So obviously, you know, um, what's it? Uh, Little Miss Sunshine, where the older brother has this sort of very existentialist, very wrong interpretation of Nietzsche because I think Nietzsche sort of bore in mind a lot of the stuff that we're talking about or that you were raising Benjamin but like um, you know that he's trying to become a fighter pilot and he's like training himself obsessively and then bam reality hits and it turns out that he's colorblind (laughs) like you know (laughs) it's very funny it just that is sort of like the the impotence of humanity to really control like because the world a gets in the way and not only that but obviously the self-sabotaging tendency of the unconscious gets in the way um, and various other things. <laughs> so.
0: yeah. and the individual is trying yeah. to is trying to persuade themselves that they are sufficient justification for their own life. Mm,
2: that's right.
0: Yeah. That, that nothing outside them, nothing else in the world or, or in society needs to be brought in for them to have uh, self-justifying value. And that immensely egotistical, prideful project always collapses. No one is really able to persuade themselves that they are sufficient justification for their own life, that nothing other than their own pleasure or gratification is necessary for them to feel like their life is meaningful. That always ends in tragedy for every person who tries to persuade themselves of that.
2: But that's why it's at your most insecure that those philosophies seem more tempting, I think. Because yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because when you sort of grow up a bit and you realise that actually you're sort of and always were hugely dependent and enmeshed in vast quantities of um, relations to the other, you know, either economically, socially, familiarly, geographically. And you, you're you like, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, I'm not, really in- I'm not really an individual at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and and but this is good. And in fact, and that we actually have all these uh you know complex sort of uh yeah and, and often ambivalent relationships with each other and and these sort of duties and feelings and and actually yeah then you, you can become a, a moral subject or a social mm-hmm. subject at least. I'm not sure what we mean by morality. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think part of why that's become such a big theme in in modernity and postmodernity is that. You know, when when you thought about how you were embedded in in communities and families and and towns and villages in antiquity or in the Middle Ages, those things were all real people. They were intimate to you, and and there was a real feeling of 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 care there and concern there, and it felt mutual. And now, when you think about the big things that you're part of, they're things that are impersonal and gigantic and terrifying, like the state or a company or uh, there's there's the units are so large that the individual is a kind of, of retreat from all of that, a kind mm-hmm. of wall that you put mm-hmm. up between yourself and the world and go, this is me and that's not me. Uh, and by saying this is me and that's not me, I don't have to feel part of this giant, terrifying thing. And a lot of the time it gets framed as the universe. But I think that mm-hmm. the, you know, the universe was not such a hostile thing when the universe contained you know, a little village and and you know, you're... Your family and your friends and people that you knew and you never went more than 10 miles away and you were around them from the moment you were born until the moment you were dead. You know, it wasn't so terrifying then. Uh, if you died in that universe, you were dying for the benefit of those people around mm. you. Uh, and now it's not at all clear if you're dying what you're dying for. Your choice in, in what to identify with is at once too big and too small, you can, you can identify with any one of these structures or institutions, uh, or you can try to identify with none of them. And, and neither one is especially satisfying.
1: I love when you, you said the, the phrase, this is me, you know, and I think just to tie it back to the, the idea of the real fake and everything, um, this is me, obviously the massive song from the recent film, the greatest showman. Showman, as in performance, but also this is me. It was about you know the essentialism of of identity, and obviously, yeah, the kind of like spiritual crutch of like really relying on the identity and the transformation of politics into identity politics is obviously a, a current theme in this like very disquieting, precarious universe we live in. But, um, just it is funny though, because this the dialectics of identity are just really fascinating. Obviously, we've talked about the dialectics of gender, and then when you actually you know enter into sort of these questioning modes how uh, contradictory everything quickly becomes you know but also we, we're doing this film at the moment about um my friend's mum who was this sort of like very um uh sort of like i won't use the word iconic but she did become a bit of an icon a gay icon and um, this very because her, her, her the icon that she was was a very embarrassing one Like she was a very embarrassing figure um but her whole identity was this sort of clown makeup. She was dressed like a drag queen as a woman. And um, she would often say, you know, are you going to take off your makeup? And it's like, well, I'm not me without my makeup because all she was, she was that. But there was no real Tammy Faye behind the makeup. You know, she was just who her appearance was. You know, you take off the mask and you're still there. Like you are your choices. You are who you are. You know, you, you can meditate on your essence ad infinitum but you can really tell who you are from what you do i think you know the to go back to the famous prince harry example where he was criticized for going to Calif- california and taking these deals and it's like well i didn't plan it it's like well you did it so you know that's you but it's interesting because there's a sort of like stripping back of essentialism like this is me i discovered this identity i'm returning to my indigenous roots all this that and the other but at the same time like th- there is nothing there just as there's nothing in the um you know non-essentialist performance but also there is everything there as in you are the choice to rely on the identity crutch you are the you are the choice to you know let's say enter into your femininity or your indigenousness or whatever but it's just it's really fascinating this like essentialist question of like i am this you know
0: it's that looking yours. to it find varies. yourself thing, you know, and I love the paraphrase of Aristotle. You are what, what you repeatedly do
1: mm-hmm. because
0: it just cuts past all that bullshit where people try to uh, abstract away from what they're actually doing in their life and identify themselves with various kinds of abstractions that they uh, are attached to on an aesthetic level, superficially, not in any real or thick sense. And they they hide from the fact that Whatever it is that you are, it's contained in what you're doing every day, in the social roles that you perform, and in whether you perform those roles well or poorly, uh, and whether you're helping other people by performing those roles or you're not. And a lot of people who don't help anybody else love to say, well, actually, I'm not the things that I'm doing, I'm this other thing that I've decided that I am, that is based on my deep essence that I've discovered by talking to my therapist or that I've discovered by climbing a mountain with the money I saved up from my job that pays me too much to do garbage
2: yeah I mean it's one thing I sort of think I'm not the only one making this this point but it's like when people are complaining about sort of structural x or the injustice of a you know particular setup and how particular marginalized or minority groups are not getting uh work or attention or recognition you just want to say give them your job then like it's like, oh, yeah. just, it's, it's literally yeah. like, okay, if this is what you think and believe, and if this is what you genuinely yeah. want to see in the world, then you must step aside, you mm-hmm. know, by your own logic, you know, even if you're not the one making decisions about employment, there could be a system or a structure by which somebody says, right, I, I you know, maybe... We could invoke imposter syndrome. They could say, look, as a privileged person, for whatever set of reasons, I have gotten this role, um, but because the system is unfair in the way that I understand it, I would like to give my job or my role to somebody else who Mm -hmm. I think deserves it more, who historically has been marginalised and so on. And like, if we could set up like an exchange for people to actually do this, I think we would see the the, the truth of the, you know, the metal. We'll see what people are really made of, you know? And I, I think because it's these existential things, and this is where I think existentialism is both to blame for the identity politics we have today, but also presents a possible alternative, which at least is to say, to keep open the fact that you are never X. You know, mm-hmm. to say I am X is the psychotic claim, right? To, to say that you are one thing, and to go on about it, is is obviously untrue. Like, everybody is in a process of becoming. Everyone is free. Like, it's absolutely bad faith to say, I am X. Okay, we can say it's shorthand, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And, of course, it becomes a question when we talk about essence, again, to talk about essential features. If we want to say there are men and there are women, then we are, of course, making claims about what exists, right? Those are claims about reality and about essence. Um, Even if we say nothing follows from the existence of certain things, Right. But um, as in, you know, there is no ought that we can derive from an is, right? So just because you could say, Mm -hmm. look, there are women, and and uh, one of the definitions of a woman is adult human female. One of the definitions of female is the 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 portion of the species who um, has large gametes or something and is capable of of reproduction in a certain way. It doesn't mean, therefore, that all of these kinds of people must therefore fulfil this telos. And this is, in a way, the kind of constant battle with a certain type of aristotelianism which we've kind of inherited whether this is actually aristotle or not let's leave to one side but you know, in a way, the anti-teleological thrust of modernity, which in a way does liberate people from these possible expectations, wherever they come from, um, has also therefore resulted in a deep, deep insecurity, like the, the atomized subject who doesn't know who he he or she is, um, who's desperately clutching at these kind of names and these words and wanting to grab onto this rope as if the hot air balloon will like somehow drag them up somewhere safer. Um, as opposed to, let's say, the the more open position, which was, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm open to everything. Like, I have changed my mind about 15 different things since breakfast, you know, which is a much harder position to sustain, because in a way, it's not really a position at all. It's simply... Yeah. And yeah, and it's it's difficult to sell and to
1: commodify and to position yourself in the market if you're just not really sure <laughs> you know you're not you're not locking yourself down saying i am this and i will give you this solution you know um but yeah it, it, you're absolutely right this sort of psychotic tendency and th- this is the this is the you know, like the dialectics of the formation of subject subjectivity where repression is necessary primary repression is necessary to have an ego to navigate the world but then of course repression can at the other end of it in a contradictory set- sense become completely tyrannical and oppressive etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah when you do away with repression entirely it does leave this sort of this gap this openness that is profoundly traumatizing and yeah can can have a sort of psychotic feel to it um but yeah I like that when you say though about like it's not necessarily the existentialist issue that's that's the issue but the relation to a certain insight of uh, existentialism you know, so it's like it's like with everything. It's not really it's not really the, the very like basic thing. You know, it's not the what, it's the how. You know, it's like you can go go about things in many different ways, but it's this sort of, you know, the okayness with the question itself. You know, rather than, um, yeah, having to lock everything down. But obviously, within a within a market system, this this delineation is necessary to to have a sort of a border that can be overcome or a border that can be crossed through the purchasing, or you set up a here and a there and a gap that can be closed by the purchasing of a product. But if it's all just sort of like, ta-da, you know, an open space, you can't really commodify anything.
0: Yeah. And this is why I really like social roles as a concept, Mm -hmm. because the nice thing about a social role is, of course, the role has a telos, a function, a purpose Mm -hmm. that you could think about and try to fulfill, right? But you're not just, just the role because your role changes. Your roles change all the time. We all perform multiple different roles. Societies can be structured in ways which result in different kinds of roles and different disbursements of roles, right? And so when we think in terms of roles, we don't have to get caught up on, on being the thing. Lukács, when he discusses reification, this confusion of the, the, the self with the role, Right. Mm-hmm. And the naturalizing of the role as, as the immutable, it, it must be because I'm doing it, the uh, final version of who I am, the developed version of who I am, that's expressed in the role. And isn't it wonderful that I found my social role because otherwise, how could I possibly be me? Right. That, the kind of confusion of the self with the role. And I think if we can, if we can get away from the who am I question, mm-hmm. right. And just go, you know, okay, what roles am I performing? Are these the roles that are the right roles for me? Should the roles change? Should I change which roles I'm doing? Should we as a society change which roles we give out? Uh, You know, if we focus on the roles, then we get away from this this fixation on whether I personally am being transcendentally seen, whether my qualities are being fully... Developed uh, in in a way which which allows my full essence to to reach its maximum. Fuck all of this. (laughs) Who cares? From a social standpoint, we have a set of roles that we'd like done. Let's talk about whether we've conceived of those roles in the right way, whether we have the right roles for people. And whether particular people happen to be fitting those roles, uh, how the particular people who are performing those roles could potentially do them better, how can help them do them better, often by having other roles that work with them and combine Mm -hmm. nicely with their roles. That's what matters from the point of view of of creating a nice society that's good to live in. And, and of course, what you're doing in the role is you're living for all of the rest of it, not just for you. You just, Just fuck the individual.
1: No, but this is so important, though, because, like, you know, the social, the public is so important. In a sense, you know, Hegel kind of, for him, recognition is is so important. Sort of like, you know, in, in terms of like a, you know, the philosophical idea of recognition, rather than oh, a pat on the head because I'm so great. You know, it's like in order to form subjectivity, you require recognition, and through the phenomenology, you know, he charts how through recognition, essentially, you know, we can we can pass from one stage to the other through this sort of like anthropology of contradiction that he kind of does. But like, so this is the thing, you know, with this, with this personalization and individualization of identity, because A, you're taking yourself at the word, but you need the other to recognize your identity. You do not exist without the other, you know, and one of the parts of the um, phenomenology is obviously the master-slave dialectic and how it sort of fails is that Within the society of the master-slave, the master has created a subset of people who essentially are non-human. They're non-dialectic, they're non-contradictory, um, and therefore that other cannot be there to recognise the master. And so, therefore, there will be sort of failures, social failures that then fall in. You know, you try to resolve the contradictions in another phase. So you need a a each of us is contradictory, um, and we therefore because of the unconscious which is the contradiction within subjectivity are not logical to ourselves and cannot be controlled just by being like, right, I am super egoically going to be like, this is me. I've decided this is it. And I'm going to do this, but B, so you need the other to actually point out who you are. You know, the other, this is why you go to psychoanalysis, how psychoanalysis works. You go, you talk about whatever Freudian slips, whatever they, they tell the other something. And it's in the mutual recognition that you can discover yourself. And the psychotic often a cure for the psychotic this is Lacan talks about james joyce for example is um in this thing the father of the name so you're missing the name of the father the instantiation of sort of like the know of the father early on to separate you from your mother's desire and so you don't have like a strongly formed ego but at some stage um being the father of the name can be a cure so for james joyce when he became recognized for his work his creativity and his name james joyce means something he can see that 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 is he, you know. He in the eyes of the other is himself. So often for like a psychotic person, really like sitting down and seeing who you are and what you do, really taking account of that can be very helpful. But it can only be possible in the eyes of the other. You know, you can't you can't just do subjectivity on your own. You know,
0: and I think I think the social role plays such a pivotal role in that because. Yeah. It's by evaluating whether or not people are fulfilling their roles that we can see whether there is something dysfunctional going on. Mm-hmm. You can't really evaluate someone in a vacuum unless there's something they're doing or trying to do or meant to be doing that you could say they're doing well or poorly. Uh, in a vacuum, without anything to do, without any kind of social role, any person is, is neither good nor bad, fine nor uh, not fine. They're just kind of there. And until there's something that you're doing that we can say, uh, are you doing this well? Or are you not doing it well? And if you're not doing it well, why? What's what's in the way? What's wrong? Uh, you know, Then we can start to problematize. But until you have a role, there's nothing really to problematize. Until you're part of it, you can't be talked about as potentially distinct from it.
2: That's
1: very true. Yeah. There was something that you said earlier, Nina, that I was... Um thinking about and I can't remember what it was it was like a really juicy thing I don't know if you ever get this where someone's talking and you're like switch mind switch and then you lose it but if, <laughs> if you're like, so we, we get onto something else that we come back what were you what were you talking about earlier on Nina was it about it was about um so we covered Heidegger so many things
2: um I don't know I was just thinking when you were talking though about the the superego. And like, why is yeah. the superego such an asshole? Like, why is it always so horrible to you? Like, it's, it's so weird. There's something I was reading by Adam Phillips the other day about mm-hmm. like, if your superego is a friend, they'd be like the worst friend in the world. They'd be absolutely, you know, they'd be pointlessly sadistic, cruel, judgmental, you know, never satisfied. You know, just this kind of like relentless sort of like voice sort of telling you off. And you know, and he was kind of saying, like, imagine if you were sort of speaking to someone else and they were telling you about their problems and they were trying to describe what they wanted to do or how they were fake. You would never speak to someone else like that. You would you would you would have empathy and sympathy for the plight of the other who was suffering something, whereas whereas the superego is like this kind of um sociopath, you know, and it's and it's like, but why? but what what is the what is the purpose of the superego? I mean is it is is it is this sort of trick to to make your superego like your best buddy, you know to try to like make your super super ego more friendly, or do you just have to sort of part with this kind of maniac? yeah, I think you have to part with the maniac because it's like
1: this is the thing so I always see that the, the superego is like you know, in the cartoons you've got the devil and the angel, yeah, and the devil on your shoulder, that's like the superego and obviously like guilt is the, the biggest super egoic thing but I think it, it is also the voice of ideology like often it's interesting you know people who are like really prolific on Twitter and you go mm. on you can really it's really like the voice of their superego. it's like mm. their voice that they're telling themselves that they're telling other people that they're telling themselves and sort of this demand for recognition of the voice of the superego. but I think like this is the thing though other people are much nicer to you or to to one than one is to oneself, which is another reason for community, you know, and often just in like dialogue, like, you know, when one feels guilty about something that they've wronged somebody, when you actually talk to the other, you know, people, people, I think people are good. Like people are terrible to themselves, but actually, Mm. well, obviously, I mean, we like fight wars and do terrible things, but it's interesting though, you know, actually, I remember what I was talking about. You were saying like testing the metal of those who are like oh you can solve everything by just like representation questions or giving back land i have to say i do know a lot of people who who believe in that sort of like um quote unquote systemic because it's like the most fake systemic thing it's like the literal non-systemic is an aesthetic it's not a systemic thing at all but anyway who believe in it and would actually i was actually just having a conversation with a friend today and he was saying the number of times that he's sort of given a job over to somebody else who thinks it's right but i I wonder how actually common that is. And the one that, that, obviously the thing that is most annoying though is the indigenous land thing, because it's like, you're obviously never going to give the land back. I remember saying this to somebody because I was watching some, some videos from the Toronto Film Festival and it must've been like 2017. And I was talking to a Canadian friend and I said, oh, it's interesting. They were doing this land thing. So it's like, so are you going to give the land back then? <laughs> and this sort of was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? But it's like, why are you doing it then? You know? So silly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I had something, but I've, I've lost it. <laughs> Maybe it'll come back.
1: We're, we're, we're losing the thread today. Um, but, oh, yeah, there was another thing, though, about fakes that I was thinking about before, which is obviously, you know, <laughs> the, the fire Festival thing and also mm-hmm. the Elizabeth Holmes thing and also the Anna Delvey thing and how, obviously there is this um, very common um, trope in sort of like the world of millennial business people to fake it, you know, and um, there was a sort of OK documentary series um, called Generation Hustle and Anna Delvey was one of the characters. You know, she's obviously quite unrepentant and there's sort of actually quite an admirable edge to it, obviously a very terrible edge at the same time, but that, you know, the economic conditions for, for millennials and also many other people at different times but obviously a class of millennials um, and also you know the the internet age where information is so widely available you know is it is it a thing where millennials feel that they have to you know in a sense you know the the the, the voguing was a a, te- a trend for people of color like queer people of color or whatever various times to sort of like act as if one was rich or whatever is this the fire festival people and the anna delby is the equivalent of that, or Were those who sort of strove for um, financial success always fake and we're we're only discovering it now because of things like the information age and this, that and the other? I just think it's interesting that it is like a real tendency, you know, all these millennial fakers.
0: Well, I think a lot of it runs on a set of certification schemes. If you get a degree, Mm -hmm. then you count as a technocrat or expert of a particular kind on the basis that you have that degree regardless of whether anything you say makes really any sense. And, you know, we try to have, you know, in in academia, we try to have peer reviewing as a way of checking against this, this people just bullshitting off the fact that they have a piece of paper, but a peer reviewing itself has a lot of issues with it. And B you can't extend something like that into the areas of life where there's actually real influence. And I think part of the trouble is that to satisfy a peer reviewer, you have to write and produce material that can't possibly have social influence. So You have, on the one hand, material which is highly influential, but can't be meaningfully checked by anybody, and material which has been heavily, heavily checked, but therefore has been written in uh, a language that is completely inaccessible. And so what we have now is is a lot of people who have acquired degrees. On the basis of those degrees, take themselves to be experts of some kind or other, uh, often Talking to other people who would very much like it to be the case that those people are experts, because if they are genuine experts, then just by listening to those people, their problems will go away. And I think we see a lot of this with corporations and and diversity inclusion officers. A lot of people who have bachelor's or master's degrees in various kind of of almost social science, kind of soft social science, soft humanities subjects, uh, who then, you know, look, I've got this degree, I'm an expert in, uh, in, in diversity. And these companies who want to reassure their uh, shareholders, their employees, and so on, that they're with it and, and woke and equitable and all the rest of it, hire these people, not because they really are sure that those people are experts, but because, hey, they're claiming to be experts. Right now, many people believe they're experts. And if we do what they say, then people will take us to be serious about trying to solve this problem. Uh, And I think that's a lot of of what's going on. Kind of like what they what what uh, Wells says in this movie, you get Mm -hmm. into a situation where everyone has a material interest in pretending that the expertise is real and pretending that the thing that's fake is real. And when everyone has a material interest in that, it becomes as if it's true. And there's a lot of crossover there between between this and, and Foucaultian power knowledge arguments and that's another direction i think we could have gone today i'll I'll buy it one that would have been more repetitive and one which i think others have covered many times Uh, but there's a whole angle uh, to do with technocrats and the degree to which technocrats are full of shit that that we that i'm brushing up against now it's too late in the hour to really do in any depth
1: you know, it reminds me though of obviously you know we um, the idea of po- was it post truth we live in a post truth world, and we've talked about the idea of the uh, right side of history you know but obviously at some stage you know right side of history lol um though a lot of these these sort of gimmicks get exposed and obviously I think one of the greatest gimmicks of the last twenty years was the WMD fakery and how much you know really. The whole issue of not <laughs> trusting anything. Like that was a massive fake. That was a massive fake. Obviously, another fake um this year, last two years has come about. And it always is like, I still feel kind of like a bit controversial raising it. Um, the obviously the covering up of the source of the coronavirus, you know, was a big fake. And that sort of that letter to the Lancet that all those scientists signed, because they had um professional uh you know entanglements in this whole question so yes we do get these massive um sort of like fundamental society shifting fakes that really change the landscape forever um and i wonder i mean that wmd one was so bad
0: uh, the others? problem is that the modern state needs a, a set of bureaucratic experts to run things, and it needs people to believe that those bureaucratic experts know what they're talking about. Because the modern state is too large for you to have personal relationships of trust with the people who make decisions and run the show. Uh, it's even too large for you to elect everybody and to have any se- semblance of knowledge about how they're actually doing and whether they're they're doing their job well. So you need this professionalized civil service in a modern state, and you have to believe that they know what they're doing. And yet, very often they don't know what they're doing. Very often they're lying, or their uh, job interests are causing them to craft narratives that are, are nonsense. And the more people get exposed to that, the harder it is to believe in the bureaucracy and in the technocratic class, uh, you know, in the professional class. And as that happens, it becomes harder and harder to maintain the legitimacy of the modern state in a satisfying way. Uh, The modern state is so big and so powerful that it it can kind of limp along even without that, but people don't feel connected to it in the same way. And this lack of connection to to the big thing that everyone is clearly part of, if you live in a country, you are all clearly part of that. If you can't be connected to that, then you fall back on various particularisms. And that leads to identity politics division and, and people just asserting my group feels this way and therefore real
1: that's a whole other thing we could have gone into the, you know, we talked about anxiety and desire, but the illusion, the lie of feelings, you know, there's a sort of, it's a very, I think, ideological thing currently that, that feelings are, are the, are a more truthful than fact, but um, that they must be, you know, listened to above all things.
0: There's so many places we could have gone. I guess we just have to record more episodes of the show. I guess we've just got to do more episodes, and we will. So thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go over and do the B-side for our Patreon listeners. And if you'd like to hear that, please, please come and support us on Patreon. And in any case, have a terrific, terrific rest of the day. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Bye.